Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books and Sociology, a channel on New Books Network. My name is Michael O. Johnston. I am your host today. Today I have Dr. Thomas Kirsten with me to talk about his new book, Where Misfits Fit, Counterculture and Influence in the Ozarks, a University Press of Mississippi, published this year, 2021. Thank you for joining me today, Dr. Kirsten. Well, I appreciate it. I'm glad to be here. So, um, Where Misfits Fit, how did you come about uh, this area of study, and, and what really drew you to, to conducting this research? Well, um, a number of years, the, there's an Ozark Symposium in West Plains, Missouri, um, and I, would present, uh, I got invited by one of the big people in Ozark Studies, Brooke, Dr. Brooks Blevins. He said, you need to go to this uh, conference. And so I started going, and it became, uh, I became addicted to it. And at some point, my uh, presentations, it, 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 they led themselves to uh, a number of people saying, you need to put these together. This is a book. Um, and so I started thinking along that line that, yeah, this is, this is a unique region. And these, these various things I'm talking about share that uh, unique regionality and uh, 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 bring in popular culture and have that thread of uh, alternative living, communal living, those types of issues that I think a lot of people, especially nowadays, really don't know about as much as they may have in the past. And Ozarks is a major, uh, it's a major focus. And it's interesting, you know, Ozarks often think of Missouri, but it also goes into Arkansas. And it's a, a, a pretty uh, wide region in terms of ground that's covered in the Ozarks. Uh, and in this, you write that the Ozarks are made up of liminal, or the Ozarks are made up of liminal spaces. What does that exactly mean, and what makes them liminal? Okay, so lim- um, liminal for me is a transitory type of place, and I really started to understand this when I was hiking, especially for other people because they would hit the woods, or oftentimes when you look at spiritual literature or things of this nature, uh, the woods, mountains, things of that nature are considered a transitory place. And of course the Ozarks are based on the mountains there. And so <clears throat> the thing of it is things are not, they're kind of in between. So there's pop, the, the mainstream culture and then there's like traditional culture and then there's things that are in between. And so in a lot of ways, Arkansas and Missouri, especially in the Ozarks are in this in-between place, a place of potentiality, if you want, uh, where things could have happened uh, uh, in the past, for instance, a lot of people come to the Ozarks to start commute, communes and um, do alternative energy things, alternative education, um, all sorts of things, because that liminal space allowed them to explore and um, uh, uh, think about things in a different way. And is there something unique about the Ozarks that make it ideal for limiters to uh, build communes and uh, gather communally? To develop the uh, to develop these societies uh, within that within such a liminal space. 
Well, may, uh, I don't know if it's still the same. It, so we're kind of talking in the past because I'm not sure this is still the yes. case. Um, the isolation allows uh, for experimentation and things of this nature. And also that mentality of you do your thing, I do mine. We don't bother each other uh, is a big thing, sort of uh, almost like a libertarian uh, aspect to it. Um, and, you know, there's um, uh, some of the communal stuff, uh, alternative stuff kind of throws back to some of the foxfire traditional things that were being lost with uh, kids growing up and not wanting to live in the woods anymore and not learn about canning or learn about how to make a, a house out of uh, uh, hand tools and such. And so some of those hippies were uh, coming in and learning that from the old timers. And uh, so there was also this organic knowledge that allowed people to come in and take on some of these uh, whole earth, Mother Earth news types of things that were going on big in the 60s and 70s. So you had a ready stock of knowledge already in place. So this sort of allowed them to give up any sort of social class ideology that would have existed that wouldn't have they would not have been able to do uh, had it been in a more urban environment. Is that correct? That is correct. And, you know, communes do exist in urban environments. They're cooperatives, usually like a bunch of people living in a house. But they're confined to their neighbors and uh, uh, city municipal rules, things of this nature. Out in the country, you could do a lot more alternative. So a lot of coding, you know, the codes that cities have uh, would prevent a lot of stuff that uh, uh, was going on in the Ozarks. For instance, uh, compost, uh, composting toilets. Uh, I'm sure codes would be violated if you did that in the city. And then another keyword that uh, you used uh, in um, in your response to my question was hippie. Uh, however, as I was reading through your book, one of the distinguishing characteristics that you um, that you tra- that you moved across in terms of language is is Ozark, Southern, and and hippie. Is there is there a big distinction between these three words and how the people you studied for this? Uh, for this research, for this book, uh, between those three words, between those three concepts? That's a, <laughs> that's a tall order. Um, a guy named Jared Phillips, um, professor at UA, University of Arkansas, he, um, he wrote a book called Hip Billies, and it's a wonderful book, and he blends in hillbilly with hippies. Um, and it was kind of that thing I was telling you about, as, uh, you know, the thesis of his is, some of that old school knowledge that some of the older folk, and they were kind of open, a little more open on things, you know, do your thing, I do my thing. Um, and then the uh, hippies that came into the Ozarks would learn this knowledge. But um, getting to Southern identity, one of the things I always wondered about when I looked at John Shelton Reed was he really had a blanket for the whole South, and he, he really extrapolated a bit more than uh, I think the regions allow for, so it doesn't really uh, pick up mountainous areas well in his research. Uh, I love his research, but when you look at Ozarks or Appalachian areas, you don't really pick up those identities. And I think those are identities that are a bit distinct than, say, Dixie, where if you look at the Civil War, for instance, many of these mountainous areas were opposed to the, the whole idea of slave uh, ownership and all that. Or maybe not opposed, but they didn't have slaves, so they were opposed to fighting in the Confederacy. Yeah, and so 
Um, you got these mountainous areas that were kind of ambivalent to the whole civil war, uh, uh, you know, issues going on. And so the idea of Dixie and Southern is a mixed bag for the Ozarks and for other mountainous areas, Appalachia, um, some of the spots uh, elsewhere there where there are mountains. Um, uh, you know, what, now, if you look at Ozarks, it's really interesting because it's really changed. When I lived there, um, we didn't really see many Confederate flags, which would be a, a symptom, symptomatic of Dixie and Dixie identity, I suppose. Um, you didn't see that. Uh, it wasn't as apparent. Uh, at least I didn't feel that when I was moved when I moved there as a teenager. Uh, but now you see Confederate flags all over the place, and um, it's, it's reconfederization, or uh, I shouldn't say reconfederate because it wasn't really Confederate, but it's a neo-confederization of the region. And so I don't know where identity in the Ozarks is going, if it may uh, at some point become more Dixified. But right now, it's it truly is kind of Ozarkian. And the people there, uh, in many ways, identify first as Ozark and then Southern. But I didn't really see Dixie as uh, a, a name or a title or anything used in businesses or whatever, um, uh, throughout the Ozarks. Well, and I speculate it may have something to do with purpose and reason for in migration, particularly uh, when the population that you were studying were back to the landers, not necessarily going there to carry out a purpose that is often related to dirt, uh, to Dixie. Uh, would that yeah. be accurate? It'd be accurate. Uh, one interesting thing is that, so there's two groups that go into the Ozarks really. Uh, in migrants, you have the uh, hippie influx, and then you have the retiree influx. And the retiree influx, which was much larger, is very, very conservative. Very, and, and you know how people take on the ideology uh, uh, fervently when they become converted to something. Uh, and the retirees go to some of these places, and they really, really become set in their ways about gender role norms and uh, all these different conservative values, much more so than their hippie counterparts that moved in. And so that's that schizophrenia again, it's going on a little bit. So there's been that fight, especially in Eureka Springs, where one group, the conservatives have this uh, Christ of the Ozarks and the passion play. And yet, on the other hand, you have everything else in Eureka Springs with all the uh, conferences for UFOs, mushrooms, uh, paranormal conferences, uh, LGBT stuff going on. So there's a fight between those two groups uh, in the Eureka. So they play out in the uh, that, that fight that's in the Ozarks in Eureka Springs uh, in a very uh, interesting way. But somehow they live together, too. Yeah, so holding this identity of being an Ozarkian, would somebody um, identifying as Ozarkian from far outside of the boundaries of what it uh, of what it means to be Ozarkian in the in the Ozark Mountains, would that be a violation of norms? Or you know, say somebody coming from outside of the Ozarks in the South or Dixie coming in and trying to self identify as Ozarkian, would there be a violation of norms there that would result in some sort of a, a consequence or, or fiction between the people? Um, you know, I've I look at this, and this goes with Southern as well. Can you? At where do you stop calling yourself Southern? At? So what are those cultural boundaries? And the way usually people react to this is where people stop thinking of themselves as that. 
And so I kind of think that way too. As long as they refer to themselves in, uh, if they say I'm Ozarkian, yet they live in uh, uh, Mississippi, well, you know, who, who am I to say that? And I think most Ozarkians don't really have that strict thing. Uh, it might be the thing of, well, the water's good, come on in. The more the merrier type of, it's where a certain group start to have a expectation. Well, to be Ozarkian, you have to follow these uh, proscriptions. And I don't think that's all, uh, that, that hasn't been the way the Ozarks had operated in the past by following proscriptions. So um, I'm not sure if today, if people who say they're Ozarkian yet live outside or are pro-choice or whatever, if they would be accepted as much as they were would be in the past. I think it was much more open in the past than it is now. Well, and I think there might be somewhat of a Gothmanian um, dramaturgy taking place here and the performance of being Ozarkian and those oh, yeah, mythical boundaries of what it means to be from the Ozarks. Yeah, I mean, it's in-group, out-group, uh, dramaturgy, the whole nine yards. you got to live there and that your neighbor, you know, at some point you got to live with them. And so what do you do? Um, and to be Ozarkian now may mean, some, I don't know this to be the case, but it may mean some proscriptions where when I live there, and I, I should let you know, when we moved there and through the years I lived there, we were never 100% Ozark. We were always considered foreign, foreigners, or as they would say, foreigners. But we were taken in and accepted and treated treated pretty well at, at, eventually. But, um, and, you know, always there is that. You weren't born here. And you're kind of a foreigner, as they would say. But, you know, a lot of people are moving up from the cities, from Little Rock and place, other places like that. And I don't know that that dichotomy can, uh, is sustainable because there's a lot of influx into the hills and away from Little Rock and away from Springfield and away from some of the bigger cities across the nation. And as that occurs, who is deciding who's a foreigner and who's, who's a native is a hard thing to do. So uh, it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Well, in the salience of an identity, um, more outward-facing identities uh, are more salient, more visible to an outsider to be able to look at a person and say, oh, yes, you're Ozarkian. Right. But uh, I I don't think Ozarkian uh, presents itself necessarily in that way. Well, there's a cliche of the hillbilly. And so, um, you know, um, and, and when we moved there, yeah, I did see some people that would fit that who had not left the county, um, who had, you know, uh, uh, logged with a mule, who had not seen an African-American before. Uh, very, very insular. But uh, those days, it, those days are not, they're past. They're pretty much past. And with popular culture so pervasive with social networking and all that, um, I'm not sure how one continued to be Ozarkian, Southern, or any, you know, so oftentimes you hear people talk about civil, uh, you know, there's going to be a civil war. And I always scratch my head, how can that be when we're so mixed and moving around? Um, And so it's going to be about ideology. What, you know, what team are you playing for in terms of ideology? Maybe that's, uh, you know, instead of looking at a person, uh, giving them the, the list and saying, okay, here's the list. This is what it is to be a Southerner or whatever. Um, but you know, that list is going to change. And then in some ways, Ozarkian being Ozarkian is 
somewhat of a social category more than it is a social group, particularly when you went about uh, doing the research for this book. You met, you met or associated with or identified uh, multiple subgroups within this larger, well, excuse me, if it is a group, subgroups within this, within this larger group of Ozarkian or groups within the category of Ozarkian if we are to conceptualize it as that. One of them was the Incoming Kingdom Missionary Unit. Could you tell me a bit more about this group? Okay, well, um, around the turn of the 20th century, um, a, a group of folks came uh, to uh, uh, the Ozarks from uh, up north, and what they did is kind of theosophical in a way. Uh, what they believed, and this is why they went to the Ozarks, is that there was going to be a battle between the Catholics and the Protestants, a kind of Armageddon. And out of that battle, you would have to have some, the survivors would be them because they're not part of that battle. And what they did was try to set up a, a colony in uh, uh, Arkansas in which they could repopulate, kind of like what the Mormons thought with different planets, but uh, this was going to be the Ozarks. And so they even put out advertisements for spinning wheels and spin, spinstresses uh, to come down, a hundred of them, so that they could, uh, uh, you know, make clothes and do all the self-sustaining things that they needed to do to create this new world after the Protestants and Catholics killed themselves off. But that all uh, came not to pass in the 1920s. Uh, like uh, uh, Fessinger's ideas about prophecy failed. Um, what happened is they had a series of prophecies about these Armageddons, and um, they didn't happen. And then they had some other notions too, like radio mind, which is kind of theosophical. Uh, you know that basically our minds, and we could train them to be like a radio, and we can uh, push out messages and receive messages like a radio. Um, and then I think another thing that led to the the demise of it was the personalities, like most communes and things of that nature. Um, they they got into the habit of starting to rename themselves after saints. And so one member might say, well, I'm St. Paul now, and I'm St. Mike. And they started fighting about the hierarchy of who, which saint was more powerful. And so power was a big issue in that. And, um, you know, the prophecy continually, continually being failed was another one. And then one of the leaders said he was going to raise from the dead one of the members, and that didn't happen. So um, it kind of uh, fell away uh, at some point. But that was a uh, it was a full blown thing in the 1920s. They even grew their hair long too, uh, to, to to you know really go back to the old Bible uh, uh, you know stories, kind of like hippies. They were like the uh, proto hippies in a way. Yes, and uh, you know the ex- the extremes that they go to, the extreme lengths that they go to, uh, in in some ways they're very charismatic. And if we are to think in sociology, what happens with the charismatic leader? is they tend to have a short lifespan because well they 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 lose the following of their of their members over time because the charisma can't be sustained for long for long periods of time oh big time and that that follows with the uh, purple people as well the uh, Nazarera. those folks um, um, you know everything is in that dear leader and he'll tell you everything you need to know and whatnot and you may have lieutenants who do the biting of the leader, but uh, if if he is perceived to be weak or um, dying or whatever, they're going to start fighting with each other. And then you have competing ideologies, which happened with the incoming folks. They started having competing ideologies. 
Um, and so you had the old timers versus the new timers, which were a little more uh, reasonable uh, about things. And uh, yeah, they, it was a very interesting group. Same county, the same, you know, that would the purple people would come later in the same county. Um, and uh, it's just really interesting. This is happening in uh, the Ozarks of Arkansas that allows th that these types of groups to exist. Yeah, and then you, I think maybe it's a personality type that, that you bring up uh, when you identify the, the trickster. That isn't so much a, a group that identifies as Ozarkian as much as it's a personality type that allows for uh, communal practices to happen. Is that right? Yeah, I can see that. And, um, but you know, uh, one of the cliches about Southerners, how he's always tricking the, uh, and I have had to learn this, uh, how he's always getting over on the, the Yankee in one way or another. Um, and so they, I, I re recall a story about grits. There's a movie about, it's called It's Grits. And in that movie, the Southerner was telling uh, some some Northern people that grits grew on bushes. And so uh, all the Southerners that were uh, listening to that were laughing. And it's just continual uh, theme or trope of how the Southerner gets over on, on the Northerner in some fashion. Or uh, for the trickster, it's basically putting it, your thumb in the eye of uh, someone in power. Oh, okay. I, so... Uh... Were there a few ways in which they they presented this uh, getting over uh, in media, whether it be through song or through uh, comics? I, I think you mentioned a, a few. Little Abler, yeah. and uh, um, I don't recall the second comic. Uh, okay. but, but you spent a whole chapter on, on the comics and, and the music that existed in the Ozark region. Right, so Little Abner um, was a comic by Al Cap, um, Al Kaplan. And basically, uh, Al Cap was a northerner. <laughs> and so he went to these um, vaudeville things, uh, very cliched, very um, uh, out of proportion, uh, hillbilly type of things uh, uh, about uh, the South and Ozarks. And he created a comic called, uh, you know, uh, Lil Abner. Lil Abner, if you, if you, understand look at the comic i don't i've never really liked the comic but i it's very much more complex than i originally read it as a boy i like uh snuffy smith now that was the other comic you're referring to snuffy smith is the archetypical trickster he's always going against the sheriff or someone the minister always doing something twisting societal norms in a way and that's kind of expected with People up in the hills, they, they, they don't go at it uh, front ways like most people do. And so the trickster does that. But sometimes the trickster can get caught up in their own tricks uh, and, and uh, you know, suffer for it. But uh, so Lil Abner, although he's seen as dense and dumb uh, quite often, a lot of times that cartoon strip points out, and that's this is what Al Cap did by using the Ozarks, he, it points out societal uh, contradictions or social issues, and he was aware of those. He became much more conservative as he grew older, but his early comics really pointed out a whole host of social issues, and he would use Al Cap, I'm sorry, he would use Little Abner to do that. Um, Snuffy Smith didn't have that complexity. Snuffy Smith was just a little trickster running around doing crazy stuff, uh, not, you know, uh, and he was very much part of that thing of the little 
the little uh, Arkansan or uh, uh, Ozarkian hillbilly guy whose wife works, does all the work. He does nothing. He, ch- he, he steals chickens. Um, he's up to no good, but he's a good guy, you know, really. Yeah, you know, I was and, just thinking of listeners. If they, if they wanted to, you know, see what a trickster might look like, uh, it would be a perfect opportunity for them to maybe do a Google search for uh, Lil Abner or, or uh, the Stuffy comics, yeah. correct? Yeah, most definitely. And I would say to, if you're going to put your toe in the water on this, start out with Snuffy. Because that would, you can see the tricks he's doing in a very obvious way. Little Abner, uh, let me put it this way. I've grown to appreciate Little Abner. Um, It's much more complex than as a teenager when I looked at it. First off, the artistry of Little Abner is very clunky and thick lines. um, Too much wording, I thought, at the time. Uh, Oftentimes too complex. And then the vernacular. Um... And so you have to deal with all that. But he, t- you know, in Little Abner, uh, he talked a, a number of things that sociologists would, you know, be proud to talk about uh, to a, a public, in a public forum. And so one way that these comics put these ideas out there is people don't realize that we're talking about controversial, complex ideas because they're cartoons. And they just, you know, so for instance, uh, in Little Abner, they had the, the uh, shmoo. The shmoo is this, Kind of, uh, and there was a cartoon on TV at some point. I don't know if you remember it, called the Shmoo. It was kind of a white, globby-looking thing with little whiskers. And so the Shmoo for Little Abner, what Al Cap created was this this creature that willingly gave itself to people for food, for pleasure, for everything. It met all our needs, but uh, people couldn't make money on us. Uh, People who wanted to make money couldn't make money off the shmoo because everybody had this resource, and so they killed off the shmoo. And so you, you have the story of, uh, you know, a re- uh, people who have collected up resources and exploiting other people. Very sophisticated, if you uh, can get the undertone of that. Um, yeah, underlying so, messages that exist. Uh, comics, oh, yeah. have long, comics have long been political. Definitely. And so with Little Abner, you really get that. Snuffy Smith, nah, you don't get that. But if you want a, a, an archetype of the trickster, Snuffy Smith would be the good place to start. And the artist, artistry of it, uh, Snuffy Smith is better, I think. And then music. I, I, I really, uh, as I continue to grow into sociology, I find arts and humanities to be an excellent resource to make sense of everyday life, uh, everyday experience that you know a sociology wants to tap into. There, there is an Ozarkian music that that emerged uh, in a uh, uh, sort of from a ground up from the communes that existed in Arkansas and Southern Missouri. Is, is that right? Well, uh, in Southern Missouri, for sure. Um, and I think you're referring to the Hot Mulch Band. Yes. And yeah, and it's this amazing story about <clears throat> a bunch of these outsiders coming in and setting up. Uh, alternative uh, living, alternative energy, alternative food. This was all the, uh, before it became mainstream, right? So uh, before you had the health food stores, before we started talking about solar paneling, any of this stuff, they were learning and beginning that in Missouri Ozarks. Real, well, in Arkansas Ozarks, but the Missouri Ozarks really had this collection of different communes, and they would come together in social time after working and 
uh, doing all the stuff that they had to do and play music and dance. And out of that came the Hot Mulch Band. Hot Mulch means manure. Uh, it's vernacular for manure. Um, and so it's a humble, it's kind of a humble uh, uprising in, in a way. Uh, and it's a play on words, Hot Mulch, uh, you know, yeah. uh, going on with that. But they, they, they brought in popular culture, so they did covers of the Rolling Stones and whatever. But they also had a number of songs of their own that depicted in their songs what they were up to. And one of their songs, um, uh, Mother Earth News Free, got on, uh, uh, was aired on Dr. Demento, as a matter of fact. And that's how I became aware of them. Yeah, it's, uh, the lyrics are, are extremely important. It's very, <laughs> that's one of the areas that uh, I've come to appreciate and even tried to, uh, well, every semester have my students do a lyric analysis of popular song in sex and gender and ethnic and race relations and hope that they can see how popular culture and, so, and how sociology can be applied to everyday popular culture. Oh, yeah. Popular culture, the music especially, is a driver of, uh, uh, it, you know, I, I can't emphasize it enough that it, it glues a community together. It can put forward ideas, make them uh, something palatable for people who might, if you put it front-wise to them, the idea they may not take. It's the same way as cartoons. But um, so, you know, these things get embedded into the culture. And not only that, with Hot Mulch, although they saw themselves as a rock and roll band, they were a hillbilly rock and roll band. And so if you listen to their music, it kind of is a blending of all. So again, this liminal space where it's a blending. Things come together and they get blended and made into new things. Um, and then these experiences get reshaped into our, our lives, the people who don't even live uh, back in those days and whatnot. So the hot most people, not only were they making music, but they were at the front of solar energy. They were at the front of, uh, all, you know, uh, sustainable eating food practices. They were at the front of uh, a whole number of things, uh, alternative education. So instead of this mainstream education where you, you're you at the uh, power, you're at the whims of like Texas books and uh, political folks and whatnot, they try to strip some of that out and have the kids learn in a more uh, critical uh, reasoning way and be, be much more, uh, um, uh, you know, informed about the situation that we see in the United States. In some ways, they're, they're exemplary of early social movements, uh, grassroots social movements and creating change because without, uh, uh, without music, without comics, without drawing attention to them through the activities that they're doing to spread the word, uh, you know, some minor changes that they have, may have had their feet in, their hands in, may not have happened. Right, right, right. So uh, uh, I think uh, with them, too, they were, they were well-read. So I, I do need to emphasize the fact most of the hippies that were coming into Missouri and, Arkansas, well, almost anywhere, were from upper-middle-class, middle-class background, highly educated, and in many cases totally ignorant of how to live on the land. Uh, uh-huh. And so... Uh, they had to learn all that stuff, and so you, uh, quite a few of them left the Ozarks and left to other places and went back into their prior environments. But those that survived, perhaps it was the glue, like the music and uh, the community. Uh, so besides the music, this area of Missouri is really extraordinary. 
they often had moving movie nights where they showed movies and they did a whole bunch of things. And then in my area where I lived in Arkansas, on the other side of the mountain, we had a, a group of uh, uh, back to landers that had, you know, they got involved with the community, with the, the folks that had been there prior to them, natives, as they called it. Um, and, and they really became one and they would have volleyball games and, uh, you know, just it, it really to survive in a communal environment, you really got to connect up with other communes. And then also, it got to, like you said earlier, has to move away from personalities. Uh, you can't just have like one person in charge. Has to have some idea, some continuity uh, uh, ideals. I mean, and some continuity. Uh, and there is a problem right now with communes across the nation. The commune folks are getting older, and a lot of younger folks like the amenities of the cities and whatnot. But yeah, the Ozarks are a place where all that could happen at one time. Yeah, the southern the southern Missourians they. Uh... Those Ozarkians, you mentioned they would go north to uh, to Springfield, Missouri, as a way to you know spread the good news. And I, I would also guess that it's probably a way for them to help further build their commune and, and grow in size because uh, have too few, the long, uh, the commune would die off. Right. Well, Springfield is part of the Ozarks. In fact, it's been likened by some as the capital of the Ozarks. Uh, some people uh, re- regard the Ozarks as a bioregion, um, and it is. It is a bioregion. Uh, if if we didn't artificially create the boundaries that we did for Arkansas and Missouri, the Ozarks would logically be a region or a state of its own. And if it were a state, Springfield would be the capital of that region. And so a lot of what goes on in terms of culture, music, whatnot, um, goes on uh, through Springfield nowadays, for sure. But, uh, um, you know, for instance, Hot Mulch, they pressed that 45 that they had uh, out of Brixie, Missouri, which is in the Ozarks. But many of them now live in Springfield. And a lot of the action is in Springfield, as, as a matter of fact. What genre would you put the uh, Hot Mulch band in? I, I haven't listened to much Ozark music, but, uh, yeah, I think I read folk music. Would that be uh, the right yeah, category? Yeah, my, my first impression when I heard it was folk music. Um, they, uh, again, like identity, they refer to themselves as, um, what are they, like uh, uh, hillbilly rock or, or, you know, folk rock or something like that. But uh, to me, there's a lot of fiddle um, and a lot of, it, it, I really, when I hear it, I, I kind of hear bluegrass too, like bluegrass rock and roll almost. Yeah, and another, uh, another way that you characterize the Cesarkian culture uh, was through... Jean, uh, Jean Baudrillard's hyperreality. You know that reminds me of a conversation that a colleague of mine, uh, a colleague of mine, have, and uh, he he said, you know, maybe the insane are actually the super sane. Is that kind <laughs> of where you're getting at with hyperreality? Uh, I think I was uh, pointing out that uh, one of the things we'll have to guard ourselves against, uh, especially in these very uh, special regions like the Ozarks, or if you go to Sedona, or if you go to Roswell, or Marfa, Texas, is that uh, as soon as you find something special, or there's a liminal liminality to it, then everybody and it opens the door for it becoming mundane, and that hyper reality where it gets touristy, 
and then people want to go to it. So, for instance, uh, they create a theme park, which they've done with Branson, and I'm sure Branson has its it, it, it has some very solid points to it. But it, uh, you know, it it a lot of people do go there to try to get back to a imagined past. Nostalgia plays a big part. And so that's part of that hyper-reality is what I was getting at. Uh, so like uh, in Tennessee, when people go to see the Ark uh, to think back on religious times, others have called it maybe Disneyization. Would that be uh, yeah. more towards what we're discussing here? Right, right. And so Eureka Springs has, I'm not sure it's as hyper-reality as Branson is. Uh, and the other thing about the dynamics of this is Branson has taken up a lot of the power and resources a lot of the what the imagination of people outside the region. So when they want to come to the Ozarks, they think of Branson. And so opportunity elsewhere in the Ozarks to expand and for people to explore it, um, and to take in some of the beautiful scenery, uh, some of the um, traditional art forms, whatnot, gets kind of killed off with this Disneyization that has occurred in Branson to some extent. And maybe... I don't know how far it goes in Eureka Springs, but you do have the people come in for the passion play and for some other things, for conferences of all sorts. And there's that fine edge that we always negotiate between where something is really moving and it, it means something to where it's, it becomes a facade of that, that experience. And so, yeah, the hyper-reality is always a risk whenever, for instance, the UFO conference in Eureka Springs those are devout people. They really do believe that uh, all, all the things, you know, like about UFOs coming down and whatnot. But, you know, um, I'm not sure that the people coming in as tourists to Eureka Springs buy into that. Uh, if you go into Roswell, talking about hyper-reality, uh, I visited, Ro- I was actually lived there for a year before I knew all that. In 86, I, ble- I lived there as a cadet. I was a, a, a cadet at a military junior college. And I had no idea about the aliens and all that stuff. But I came back many years later, like a few years ago, and there are people walking down the streets with these little green antenna on their heads and uh, alien super big sunglasses on. And so it kind of profanes it. I guess it would be a good word to say. Yeah. It, it profanes that notion. It, it makes it mundane. It takes the, um, the magic out of it, if you will. Yeah, sort of like uh, Durkheim and his, uh, you know, the difference between the sacred and the profane and, and the necessary community and true believing and uh, buying right. into turning what was once once authentic <laughs> into inauthenticity. It's no longer it's no longer original. It's no longer in its traditional right. form. And so there's that fine edge that um, I'm not sure how the Ozarks can negotiate because they do want people to come in. They do want tourists to come in. And but, I'm not familiar with yeah. Eureka's. I'm not familiar with Eureka Springs either. But it seems to me that it's a very significant place in the Ozarks for um, communes like the ones we have talked about so far. Right. Well, so the influx back in the early '70s, uh, a meeting spot for that, uh, uh, the primary meeting spot for all those people to learn how to get together and some of the tricks of the trade to be a, uh, being a communard. Uh, uh, to living in the woods and all that, it happened in Eureka Springs. And so Eureka Springs is a very special place. They've, they've had kind of a unique 
all the way from the beginning because of uh, the water allowed people who were on the fringes to think that the water would make them healthier. So homeopathy early, I mean, back in the 1880s, 90s, it really started to uh, blossom in such a way that a lot of these people from across the nation would come to drink the, the magical, as they would see it, magical water that would do all sorts of great things um, for them. And uh, so you think of the roots of a, a, a place, and if they're built on some of these notions, it makes it special. And then it was an art, artist writer's colony in the, you know, in the 40s, 50s, on, on up to now. And it was kind of open to a, a lot of um, different things. But at the same time, a lot of the retirees coming in came into the, that area as well because it's very beautiful. Um, and, you know, they created the, the Christ of the Ozarks. Anti-Semite created the, the Christ of the Ozarks. And so you've got, uh, you know, interesting communal folks, folks I could uh, feel comfortable with. And then you have militia folks also, too, in the Ozarks. So it, it, it's a, a mixed bag now. But, yeah, Eureka Springs is a very interesting place. They have uh, conferences for pretty much anything. Uh, morale mushrooms, LGBTQ types of uh, holidays, they bikers, um, uh, devout Christians, UFO uh, enthusiasts, paranormal folks. And so one little town to be able to do that, it makes it special. And so, you know, I, I'd encourage people to take a look at that town for sure. I enjoyed the take the you the the take the you um use for this book and the focus on the region rather than an individual group uh, because these groups were not alienated they weren't isolated necessarily from one another uh these communities would come together and and have as you said movie nights and other activities doing them together to uh you know, as leisure but also as learning as an opportunity to learn from one another is that correct that is correct. And as a counterpoint, when we moved there, because I lived in a commune, that's, that's why I moved to Arkansas with my dad and my mom and all that. as a hippie kid, a um, uh, young teenager. Uh, we were isolated and our lives were miserable uh, as opposed to most of the communal folks uh, throughout the rest of the Ozarks uh, who uh, figured out how to, uh, who what other communes that exist in the area or uh, learned to live with the native folks in some fashion. Um, uh, our, our our time up on the mountain, as we would call it, uh, was a bit tough when we first started. And so, yeah, it's all about connections and not only connections with fellow communal people, but connections with people in community and figuring out those social networking things that are so important for the survival of a group. So the, the real answer, the answer that you provided there was, it, it kind of depends. It depends on, the amount of social capital that, that one has in the area in which they uh, dwell. Exactly. Uh, and so a lot of the folks on the other side of the mountain uh, from where we live, they, they not only social capital, but they had social um, skills. They, 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 could, they knew how to rub people the right way, whereas um, I have to be blunt about it. We, we were not turn-the-other-cheek hippies. We weren't peaceful hippies. Uh, we were uh, a little bit, uh, you know, dad wanted to do certain, certain things in a certain way and he wouldn't cut his hair. He had his opinions. So there's just certain ways to, to live in a, a community and uh, that allow you to fit in better. And that is social capital. Uh, uh, 
for sure, and building up those connections. And we really didn't have that. And so we suffered because of that. Excellent. I really enjoyed reading this, reading this book and, and learning more about uh, your experiences as, as an ethnographer, but in some ways, you know, an autoethnographer being able to use your unique lens to be able to understand what was going on in the Ozarks throughout the ages. Okay. I, I do like, a, I'll have to put that on a business card, the autoethnographer. <laughs> you know it's in some ways it's edgy still right because well what is autoethnography it's other than a biography or something like that but uh i don't mind such right. a word well i try to do uh provide an insiders and an outsider's account so that uh, anthropological emic etic type of thing where i say okay i kind of know where they're going with this their form of logic or what they're up to because I was inside it, but, you know, with my academic background, I'm, I am not, you know, I'm not there. Um, uh, you know, when they, when they can't see some of the things in terms of power and exploitation and homophobia and racism and other things, those are things that maybe people on the inside, and not only the Ozarks, anywhere. If you're on the inside, you don't see those things. You have to kind of be on the outside of it a little bit. And so I appreciate that uh, I can provide those two types of narratives in, in these stories that I have in this book. And so what, what do you think you would say was most enjoyable about your uh, time doing this research? I think actually uh, conveying to people who didn't really know anything about the Ozarks that it's not just a regional thing. This is an American thing. Uh, it's an American story because you have people coming in from all places and they're, they have hopes and aspirations, uh, different ideas about reality, for instance, the UFO people or the purple people. Um, and they all want to do something, and they think that the Ozarks is the place to do it. And so it's really nice uh, for me to see people's faces when I talk about this region. And they say, you know, when they first hear it, people hear it, they, they may think, well, Hollywood and that Ozark show, whatever that is. I don't, I don't watch TV much, but... Um, and then they hear some of the stories I have about this, and they'll say to me, "Why wow, I just had no idea. It's not a regional story. It's a story about America and this special area and how we use this. As Americans, we use this region kind of as a, a place to experiment with in some ways, culturally experiment. And as, uh, you know, as time tells, some things that were once normal or you know, social norms are now seen as counterculture, whereas maybe some things over time that were once counterculture become social norm. So to call it American, I think, is important to be able yeah. to see that these people, while living a different lifestyle, are still living it on the same geography that we all are. True, and that we're actually, uh, uh, we are uh, better for it. I mean, those uh, people in the, Southern Missouri and Northern Arkansas that were doing alternative energy, food, education. That's mainstream, mainstream stuff now. We don't even think about it. It's just part of our culture. And, uh, you know, I don't want to overplay it, but the Ozarks was a big part of that. And so uh, I, the, for me, it's enjoying. It's, it, it, I, I, I'm happy to get past the cliche of the hillbilly or the meth uh, nest or whatever that Hollywood comes up with, um, uh, that there, there's something, something more there 
than just what some of the folks would have you believe. Unfortunately, Dr. Kirsten, we're out of time. But I have one last question that um, I hope that, that you can answer for the audience and myself. And, and that would be, what are you working on now? Okay. Um, I want, so one of my things, as I see myself, as a person who wants to expose some of the uh, richness of the social life that we have and the history we have in America and in this region, I want to make it less monolithic. And so I, I'm thinking about uh, uh, my ne- if I if I can do it in a, in a reasonable amount of time. My next book will be about counterculture in the South, where I look at some uh, things that are going on in Missouri, uh, Mississippi. I'm sorry. Uh, for instance, there was a um, there was some theosophical lodges that existed in Mississippi and Alabama, and Alabama had a radio station that was a theosophical radio station. Um, and this is back in the uh, early 20th century. Also in Mississippi, we had um, a communist, or not a communist, but a socialist colony on the coast and one up in the middle of the state and a lot of counterculture papers. So what I want to do is try to expose people to the idea that there's a rich culture out there that is not monolithic and that their uh, what their idea of the South is uh, might uh, be be, uh, better, uh, the ideas that they have about it might be, uh, uh, expanded by looking at some of the things that you don't get in a history class or in high school or whatever, because everywhere I talk about these things, no one I've, uh, talked with said, wow, I've heard of this. And so I think uh, I want to expose people to this rich history and social life that exists in the South that most people say that when they think of the South, they think of what? Well, Usually two things. Hillbilly or, or Dixie or... Race and race, it's, yeah. uh, it's poor, it's backwards, things like that. But one of the things I know is uh, one of the largest counterculture newspapers in the United States existed in Jackson, Mississippi in the late 60s, early 70s. So that's what I want to do. I want to get that out to uh, my fellow... Uh, 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 Americans and people across the, even in across the world that there is more out there if you're willing to take a look at it and that history needs to be uh, explored and shared. And so my, my next big thing is a counterculture book about Mississippi or about the South in general, something like that. I haven't figured out exactly. So how are you studying it? If it's not, uh, if it's not in the mainstream history books, and as you said, many of these, uh, countercultures are dying off as a result of uh, of the original members getting older and uh, not much growth taking place within these social groups. It is tough. Um, you know, oral histories were not a thing done back in, back in the past. So uh, for older groups like that uh, socialist colony, the grander age colony, I look at their letters, uh, look at other types of materials and recreate a story from that. Uh, for other cases, uh, I'm thinking I can still get a hold of some of the people who lived in some of these communal efforts and, uh, you know, interview them and, and figure out some of the story that way. As for the newspaper, like uh, uh, it was called the Kudzu, just if anyone's wondering, uh, some of those folks are still alive and I need to get on it. And I'll talk to them. And plus, the newspapers are still out there. 
and uh, we can take a look at them and full of music. You talked about how much you love music. The counterculture in Mississippi, they they call it, uh, what do they call it? The capital of Woodstock South. Wow. Yeah. So I, I intend to, uh, my next book probably to be along that line. Excellent. Well, I look forward to having you on the show for for that book as well. And, and we'll be in <laughs> touch. Uh, you're a scholar after my own heart. Your, your area of research, doing content analysis, doing things that, that that really didn't stand out in the in the main chapters of your book because it was written like a like an ethnographer, and and, and you are an ethnographer and you're talking about your observations experiences, but you're also triangulating your data. You're looking at content uh, content as well and doing content analysis, and uh, you know that's the stuff I love because some of these stories can't be observed; they're they're not available to the human eye. Hey, I'm not shy. If I can find data any which way, I'll use it to build a story. <laughs> I'm not shy. Uh, so yeah, I, uh, it has to be valid and reliable for sure. But, um, uh, and you know, it has to be part of the story. I, I don't want to go down a rabbit hole, uh, where I don't need to, but yeah, I'll use anything to build a story. Uh, so I've used newspaper accounts. I've used, uh, actual, uh, for instance, a UFO story. I used actual reports, uh, UFO reports. I've done the field research of going into the you know, uh, studying, or uh, you know, uh, when I look uh, at this conference, how people interact with each other and whatnot. So I'll use every means at my disposal to try to get that, that story. Yeah, it's it's the story that's emergent. It's the emergent the emergence of the story that we can't tell for ourselves if, if the story wasn't there. So I really appreciate this uh, this research method, uh, both as a scholar myself, but also having an opportunity to learn more about other scholars who use it, but may not blatantly write it out in their uh, in their book, because I'm sure it's much more widely used than the tale tells. Right, and well, the other thing too, I can't write like I would for a journal in a book like that. I mean, um, some of the things are, uh, you know, journal articles are formulaic, and you lay out your methods and all that. Here, it's more of a narrative, so I have to be careful about. Uh, you know, that fine balance of writing to uh, keep the person's uh, uh, attention and but still being sociological and rigorous in that way. It's a fine balance to do that. Excellent. Well, thank you again, Dr. Kirsten, for being on this show. And I look forward to having you back on again soon. And thank you so much. I enjoyed the conversation. Excellent. This is New Books in Sociology. Today I had Dr. Thomas Kirsten to... Uh, talk about his book on how misfits fit a study of uh, Ozarkian culture. Have a great day.